Welcome to Unlikely Intersections, where intent, impact, and inquiry inspire our conversation. I'm Dr. Terry Jackson, and I have my good friend, Dr. Philip Brown, with us, and we are at the intersection. What is interesting about the intersection is we face it every day. Actually, we face many intersections every day. How we deal with those intersections every day will help pick the trajectory of our daily life and also our future. How do we deal with at the intersection when we meet different people? We have a very interesting topic today. This topic is really the power of giving away power. This was suggested by Dr. Brown, and it's an excellent topic. Yeah, and we're going to have some uh, suggested reading in our reading list that you'll be able to pick up on our website for this. But I'm just curious if anybody in our listening audience, you know, do you ever need to scale a project or suffer from too many ineffective meetings? This episode is really coming right at them. Some of the topics we're going to talk about from a traditional leadership standpoint are, are really radical. It's a radical departure from how leadership is conducted. Uh, but I think it's important. It's supported by data. Uh, and, you know, I'm going to have fun with the discussion. Hope you do, too. Yes, we're going to have a great, great fun with this because when we talk about power, you know, it, it's difficult for a lot of leaders to give up. They like to hoard power, right? And, we, and even though we always talk about empowering the people, in theory, in theory only, but in practical application, oftentimes we don't empower the people and we don't give up our power because it gives us as individuals a sense of power and a sense of importance. And so that's why this topic is so important today. I think of it as it's that model of the illusion of control. Yes. That you know, hoarding power gives us the illusion of control and on the business side, you know, there's some real common ways we do it. We're all subject to it every day. We put in assumptions, which means we factor out <laughs> what we can't control. Mm -hmm. We assign our teams KPIs, key performance indicators. <laughs> we monitor a battery of metrics because it's more comfortable to pretend that we have control than it is to live with the discomfort of uncertainty. It's really that simple, right? That's right? But at the same time, the premium now, the skill set really should be, the, it's, it's about the need to understand variability, complexity, and impact. And it has so little to do with predictive models. We should have really learned that a long time ago, maybe, but in the pandemic in particular, yes. with the rate of change, with how things have transformed and, you know, until we change this sort of, you know, let me put in only predictive. It's like you get your E&Y audit or whatever, and, you know, the first thing they tell you is here are the assumptions. Yes. And what that means is these are all things that are plausibly true. Mm -hmm. They may bear, bear no uh, <laughs> resemblance to reality, right. but they're plausibly true. So this is how we're going to do the calculation of stuff. You know? And it is the best that could be done given the current way things have been conducted. But, man, it's kind of working against us in a dynamic change environment. It is. And part of the challenges, as you were just talking about, is using those old models to apply to present-day challenges that we face or even using the old model to apply to some future state 
that that may may occur. And you know, as you were talking about control, I thought about decision authority because in organizations at each level, there's some level of decision authority, right? What one can do and can't do at that particular level to give us the illusion of control. And that illusion is simply because we've done certain things, certain ways over a period of time. And because we have done those things over a period of time and we've had some quote unquote success with doing it that particular way, we think that that's the right way. And we think that we can control the process when in fact we can't control the process because the minute that you use the same process to achieve the same goal and it doesn't happen, what do you do? You continue to take a look at it, right? And so our power that we had in the process doesn't exist any longer because it's always been an illusion. Always been an illusion. And it's interesting, so many times we're really putting these models together through the rearview mirror anyway, yep. yes. right? Things happen and we go back and we create this explanation and then we try to translate that to the future. So really all those metrics, those KPIs are created as if past results guarantee future results. And we just know that's not no, the that's case, not right? The case. Like you can learn from history and hopefully that it translates <laughs> to not making the same mistakes. But in fact, something that was a mistake in the past could have just been ahead of its time. And it might be the exact thing you need to do to that's successfully right. navigate the future. So you got to really stay open to it. You know, <clears throat> in investments, when they send you to prospectus, they always say, that past performance will not dictate what's going to happen in the future, right? They make sure that they say that. We don't always think that in organizations. We think that whatever our past performances has, has been, we're going to continue to perform that particular way because we can control the outcome. And our great friend, Dr. Rao, always says, look, we've never had control. You never will have control. You've never been in control. Only thing you can do is, as we discussed in our last episode, is trust the process. That's right. And it's a matter of really a deep understanding of the, of the difference between leadership and management, right? right? That's right. I mean, you know, management is all about trying to control, trying to have repeatable processes, which is an important component a lot of times, right? But you also have to have intervals to confirm that you're actually doing the right thing. Mm-hmm not necessarily doing the things right, that's you know, right. and that's, that's, right. that's that key difference we try to tease out a lot of time between management and leadership. That's right. And in this particular topic, we're talking about leadership giving up their power, right? That's a novel idea that we've often talk about. We were just talking earlier about uh, the recent purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk and him going in with power and, how things are not looking good initially after his, 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 his purchase. And it's because of his being in an illusion that he can control everything and that he has the power to do so when, in fact, he doesn't. Yeah, it's amazing to watch that because, you know, I mean, and who knows how it's going to work out, right? Right. Like, there may be all kinds of factors, but so far it's a total debacle. Yes. And it's translating to not trusting people, making demands on people, a very clear lack of understanding of what it actually goes into making that platform successful. And 
Yeah, I mean, it, it really looks like a child, mm-hmm. you know, trying to control toys to yeah. watch it right now. Now, again, who knows where it's going to end up, and people can certainly change. But so far, that's just a great example of of how much damage can be done by by the hoarding of power. Yeah, and and when we take a look at because of the pandemic, you know, people started to work virtually. There was a hybrid workplace. Some people would go in certain days. They work from home other days. And then all of a sudden you had these CEOs calling all the people back into the office, right? Which was a, a sign of power. You either come back in or you lose your job, right? Sign of power. Versus willing to give up their power and say, hey, if it's successful, from a virtual perspective, maybe we as an organization need to look at how do we scale back from all of the brick and mortar locations that we have and enable our people to do the work in a hybrid model or from home. But it was about the power of having the people in the workplace with, quote unquote, the thumb over their employees, which has nothing to do with empowerment of the people as we're talking about giving away or giving up your power. It's about having ironclad power over your people because as we mentioned earlier, as senior executives, you have ultimate accountability and responsibility for the outcomes of the organization. And the craziest thing is that the data showed us how much more productive people were in <laughs> working home. So it's like, here, let, let, don't confuse me with facts. Let me just use my bias to say how things ought to be because that's what I'm comfortable with. Uh, and that's exactly the kind of thing, you know, that we're talking about here is a different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And uh, Matthew Barzoon, author uh, of a book that's on our reading list, tells a story about how this really works. And it's the story uh, goes back to Obama's mm-hmm. elections. And really the thing was, was, you know, with their election volunteers, they're, they were trying to figure out, you know, how to really engage these volunteers and it came down to a decision of whether or not to give them the information about the voter rolls. Mm-hmm. And that's highly guarded information. It's where the people live. It's how they might vote. It's all these kind of things. If your opponent got it, it could be potentially very damaging. And the team was recommending that they make that information available to volunteers. Mm -hmm. And the establishment was like, oh, no, too risky, too risky. But long story short, ultimately they did make that available. And they really found out how much better it made things, right? Like because these volunteers were showing up in droves all the way to Election Day when I didn't know this. I learned it in the book. There's a thing called the flake rate. Mm. And basically what that is is you look at the number of volunteers that said they were coming, and you take that as a percentage, and whatever percentage didn't show up, those are the, that's the flake that's rate. That's the flake rate, okay. And so it'd be terrible if your flake rate was 80. It'd be great if it was 30. But for Obama, when they asked about the flake rate, because they had empowered all these volunteers to do stuff, and they're like, we don't know how to do the calculation. 
the flake rate is minus 50%. So mm. for every 10 volunteers that said they were coming to work mm-hmm. for Obama, mm. 15 showed up mm. because they'd been empowered with the right information. They were engaged in the team. They felt like they were part of something that was purpose-driven, that was bigger than they were, mm-hmm. and their ideas were valued. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the concept that we're talking about in today's episode of how you effectively share power. And it has huge themes for uh, inclusion as well. Yes. You know, uh, that's interesting because <clears throat> I was reflecting on or thinking about how do we use that model in a for-profit organization? Because there's so many political games that are being played, right? And, the, and there's so many people jockeying for position, trying to be, get into the C-suite, trying to get a promotion to become a manager or a leader. There's so many games and so much ego in those, well, I guess they exist in nonprofit organizations as well, but in those for-profit organizations is, that's a complete culture change, right? That's a, that's a rewiring of the brain, basically, for people to say, hey, I have to be able to, to give up this because we're taught differently as it relates to you know power and information and knowledge and how to use it to your benefit. But based upon the book, it was how do we use it for the greater good of everybody? We're going to trust everybody with this information. And given the, the flake rate, it proved that it was extremely effective to empower the people with all of this information and to trust the people. And I think it's Steve Jobs that say you hire someone and you let them do their job. You don't, you don't micromanage them. Right? That's right. Yeah, we, I mean, we hire. We don't hire smart people to tell them what to do. We that's hire right. them so they'll tell us <laughs> what to right. do. Yeah, absolutely. And that's 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 that leap of faith, right? Because uh, what we tend to see, and, and it's almost how we opened up, we trap ourselves behind these metrics and ca- and key performance indicators. A lot of those are designed around executive compensation, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so. candidly, those are going to be relatively non-aspirational goals, right? Because somebody's compensation is tied to it. So I don't care how rigorous the process is for the board review or upper level reviews for anything. Those goals are going to be set at, for the most part, at levels that people know can be achieved. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about trying to do something transformational, you have set a model in place that's mm-hmm. going to fight that mm-hmm. because that's how people are compensated. And I talk about this all the time. It's one of the things I think we really need to challenge ourselves in organizations to figure out new ways to, to structure that compensation. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and I, I don't know exactly what that is, which is kind of part of the theme of, of a show like this, right? Mm-hmm. Is so how do we even get at that, next right idea because the one we have for uh, executive compensation in many organizations is set up as a perfect comp formula for a management paradigm Mm -hmm. and is woefully suited to a leadership paradigm but in times of rapid change what we need more than management is leadership that's right that's right that's right and i was i was sitting here thinking those compensation structures are inherently subjective because oftentimes the executive may have 
some input into how that should be structured so that the the executive can win, right? Versus the, the organization winning, right? The organization winning is mean meaning means that we're going to stretch our goal such that I have to be more innovative. I have to be more creative in order to get to an outcome, right? And that's real, real, you know, leadership. I remember during the pandemic, I think it was a gentleman at, uh, was it Texas Roadhouse, the CEO, who he actually took his salary and gave it to those who worked in the restaurants such that he didn't need the money, but he wanted to support his workers who were there during the pandemic as they were open. So I think his salary was a couple million dollars a year. He actually diverted all that money to people who were the waitresses and the waiters and the the dishwashers. And that in and of itself was true leadership because he understood who was most important in the organization. It wasn't him. It was the people on the front lines every day doing the work. And so as a result of that, he was probably the most creative or innovative executive during the pandemic as it relates to uh, diverting his salary to those who were doing the work daily. Well, that's the, that's, that's the hallmark of leadership, right? Understand that it's really about servant. Hood. Mm-hmm. You know, how do I serve the folks that are really the ones who are serving the customer, whoever that is, whether it's a, a patient or a retail customer or a, you yeah. know, restaurant customer, mm-hmm. whatever it is, yeah. you know, the leadership role is servanthood. And sometimes we've lost that, especially when we find ourselves in so many of these paradigms that are based on quarterly performance. Um, those things are just really so short-sighted because mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't really allow innovation, right? It allows us to manipulate things, and mm-hmm. and a lot of times the target of those manipulations is people, right? And you know, we I think there's a change in the in the semantics now, moving a little bit away from humans as resources. Uh, because what you tend to see is when, when humans are viewed as resources in the same, uh, same thought process as buildings or supplies, mm-hmm. you know, then they're humans without humanity. Right. And we know right. that can never work right. out well. You know, I think there's a basic question that has to be asked because there are, top, there, there, there are many leaders out there wondering, why would I give up my power? Why would I utilize a model like this that gives more power to uh, my employees and makes me, when you look at vulnerability from a negative perspective, makes me more vulnerable as a leader. It makes it makes it easier for someone to come and take my position. So why would a leader want to give up the power? Well, you know, in order for that to happen, that leader's got to be comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty. Mm. The trade-off is performance. Mm-hmm. And so what we see so often now is that predictability of performance is more important than level of performance. Mm-hmm. And that's where this really comes into play. That's why it's so radical, right, is because we're trading, we're trading that predictability, or, or that's what the, the construct is that we're saying – I'm going to give up the predictability on this at the levels I'm accustomed to 
but I believe that it's going to it's going to create a much higher level of performance. Mm-hmm. And that's just a leap of faith. That's just a leap of faith to a certain extent, though it does work. And this is where that connection, I think, to to diverse teams really comes in, right? Because what we what it allows you to do is take in more ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think about it from the standpoint of in any interaction or particularly in a meeting, a decision-making meeting, and uh, Matthew Barzun talks about this in his book too, there really are only four possible outcomes and three of them are bad. Mm-hmm. You know, and so – you know, one outcome, one of the bad outcomes is that I give in and you get your way. Right. I've acquiesced to what you want right. and we get on down the line. Right. I'm not real happy. You're real happy. Uh, you may not even know that I'm unhappy. Second bad outcome is victory. Mm-hmm. I just win. You know, I bully you into something. You know, I I charm you into something. I negotiate my way to a victory. We get my way. You're not real happy. Mm -hmm. I may not know about it. Mm -hmm. I may know about it. I may not Mm -hmm. care. Mm -hmm. But it's not a good outcome. Then there's compromise. And, And, you know, like so much of the time we think of compromise as the holy grail. Not so much. Compromise is no different than acquiescence, right? Mm -hmm. It's just that we both did it. And so we ended up with this two-sided, I don't get exactly what I want, you don't get exactly what you want, Mm -hmm. so really nobody got what they wanted, so you know we must just move ahead miserably and get on down the road. Do we really want those to be the the three, any of the three? No, not really. So what is, so what is the, you know, what is the real holy grail of that interaction or that meeting outcome for decision? It's integration. Mm-hmm. And that's when all the different members of the group make a new thing together. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not a compromise. It's not an acquiescence. It's not a win. It's a fundamentally different product, way of thinking, plan than what we had before. And the magic is that Everybody's bought in. Mm-hmm. They help create it. It's co-creation, like your book, co-creation mm-hmm. leadership. Mm-hmm. And you know, in that constellation, maybe the one most important thing, and this is where we get it so wrong. This is what is opposite world of assumptions and all this predictability, is that we don't exclude what's different. We celebrate it and we incorporate it because it's different, and that's where the magic happens. Anytime you want transformation, you've got to incorporate different things. You can't be a leader and not be inclusive. You, you, you have to have an inclusive mindset in order to be a leader because it's about bringing everything together for the greater good of the organization from, a, from an outcome perspective. And, and as you just said, it's really about how do we sit down, have a conversation, toss out brand new ideas, and create something that's never existed before, right? Such that we all are, we, we all benefit from it. We all win from it. 
Very few people want to have those kinds of conversations because there's something around the power that they possess that they want to maintain. That's the important of the importance of this. You know, you can take a look at, I guess, let's say during the pandemic, the process of getting uh, FDA approval for drugs. It's obvious that that process was transformed in a particular way in order to get drugs through the process much faster. So that meant there was conversation. That, that also meant, most importantly, that someone within those organizations, whether it's the pharmaceutical companies or the FDA, had to give up power. They had to give their power away for the greater good of the citizens of the United States for the vaccinations. And there's so many great pieces of that that you know we're not celebrating we're not studying that much because we've just gotten mired in this controversy of oh, I, need, I, I believe in the vaccine or i don't or right. you can't make me do anything but if you actually go back to the process of how that happened how that happened so fast how that was so much different than any other thing there are so many fantastic lessons in that process and i think that at some point we need to revisit that to understand just how how powerful those changes really were, and they can be instructive for the future. That's right. The the as you, the power of giving away power, right? Because now you know that there's something totally new that's going to be created because I'm giving away the power. I don't need to hold and and hoard any power. What I need to be able to do is give it to someone who could actually use it better than I can use it and come back to me with a creation that's going to be beneficial for everybody, whether it's from a social perspective or whether it's from a, a for-profit perspective. And to even begin to think that way is, is, is transformational. Right. It is truly novel because we like to think about and talk about how we think. But very few, very few people examine, really examine how they think or work on thinking on a day to day basis. And that's where the true power is. Yeah. It, it, the biggest obstacle to it, I think, is imposter syndrome, probably mm. a topic we've, we've mm. touched on before. But studies have been done. The percentage of of leaders who actually to really fully know what the real task at hand even is 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 surprisingly small, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because of the complexity of the world we live in. What would you really expect mm -hmm. when we talk about constantly trying to create things that are new and innovative? it's unreasonable to expect that somebody has a mastery of something that's never existed before. Mm -hmm. Right. What, what that leader needs to have a mastery of is how to engage a team of talented individuals to integrate and create that. And that's where, you know, that's where the inclusion theme really ties in so strongly because the only way to get the best a person has to offer is to give them the information they need to develop ideas, to fully develop ideas and to create an environment where 
Ideas are welcome. It's not a threatening environment one way or the other, right? Because, you know, it might be a piece of my idea and a piece of your idea that comes together and is brilliant. Either one of those ideas together is insufficient. Uh, so it shouldn't ever be a situation where you have team members uh, competing for their perspective to win, not on a highly functional team. That's right. You know, it really is what is the ultimate need that we're trying to fulfill. Absolutely. And and this this example may go a fit into what we're talking about. You know, just recently, I'm a football fan. I know you're a football fan. There was controversy. The Indianapolis Colts, they hired Jeff Saturday, guy who had never had any head coaching experience, whether it's high school, college, or NFL. But yet he's hired as an NFL coach. And he goes in, and his only goal for that week is to win because the Indianapolis Colts had been losing and they had been predicted possibly to be a Super Bowl team. And he said that what I know how to do is to lead men. And so his ego didn't get in the way. He didn't try to say, I'm the guy with the power as the head coach, and here's what we're going to do. He let his assistant coaches co-create what they needed for that particular week to get the win because he understood that the win would give them the momentum to continue on successfully. And in the win, he gave every team member a game ball to to show them that to collectively, each and every team member had played a vital role in the win that week for Indianapolis. And it wasn't about his power, but it was about the collective power that won. So that thinking was different for them. And so they eventually got the win. And he proved a lot of naysayers wrong by being able to go in and at least for one week lead that team without ever having any head coaching experience. A people guy, right? I mean, so he, you know, he – he knew how to lead people, and that was his reputation in the locker room as a player, evidently, right? I'd love to watch all these morning sports shows. I do it while I'm working out usually, and uh, the perspectives on it have been all over the place, yes. you know, but it certainly changed after that first big win. And to me, you know, the real instructive thing is that if you, if you take that theme, it's not about the X's and O's at that level any different than it is in big corporations, any different than what we're seeing with Elon Musk, mm -hmm. has nothing to do with the technical aspects of it, right? It, it's how the product comes together. And it's what you see from the greats. So whether you talk about John Wooden or Dean Smith or Mike Krzyzewski mm -hmm. or Roy Williams, how they, and they re repeated it over time, right? They brought people together for a higher purpose and achieved unbelievable things. That's right. And to reach the higher purpose, it means that you have to be able to give away power and have confidence when you give away power that you have nurtured those who now have the power in such a way that they're going to produce. Again, bring the product together. And one of my favorite stories about that has to do with believership. 
Mm-hmm. And it's a Carolina basketball story, like a lot of them are. And I, and I think it was the year that they had all those guys on the SI cover, you know, or it might have been the next year. But certainly you had Michael Jordan and Sam Perkins mm-hmm. were both just consensus All-Americans. And mm-hmm. there's a picture. I think it, it it's appeared all over the place now. But it shows how much they believed in what they were doing because it shows the little uh, scoreboard that used to be kept on the floor in Carmichael Auditorium. Mm-hmm. And it's both of them laid out diving for a loose ball. And Carolina is just massacring the other team on the scoreboard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But here you have both of these two guys who had these, you know, magnificent ability, all Americans. Mm-hmm. Next level was happening, and they're just giving it all up diving for one loose ball mm-hmm. because they believed mm-hmm. they believed that's that's they believed right Dion has them believing down in uh, Jackson State they believed right you know one of the things about the book that really uh resonated with me the author talked about symbols the symbolism that was used within the book. And I know you have a greater grasp on, on, on that, but how did, how did the author see symbolism as a means of utilizing or giving away the power to other people? Yeah. I mean, he used an example of the dollar bill, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, sort of the pyramid structure versus the constellation mm-hmm. structure mm-hmm. is the idea. And constellation is, really what we're talking about where mm-hmm. you decentralize mm-hmm. power, you have information flowing everywhere and, mm-hmm. and people are able to really exponentially perform mm-hmm. versus the pyramid structure, which is what we see in businesses and all. And the thing that I love about it is he talks about how insidious the pyramid is about sneaking back into things, right? Yes. Like you think you've created a constellation and you look five minutes later and you realize that old pyramid is snuck back in and, you know, we're sending information up, you know, up the ladder to a small point and then, right. you know, sending right. it back right. out and you lose so much that way. Um, and it's all over. When you start looking for it, like, you know, I read this book some time ago and I started looking around just mm-hmm. everywhere. It's amazing. You see it everywhere. Everything in this country, whether we agree with it or not, is built upon the pyramid, right? You got the base where the majority of the people are, and the higher you go up, you know, the numbers of the people get smaller. But ultimately, at the top, there's a few people who are making decisions. We can look at our government structure, and we see that it's that way. We look at organizational structure. Even though we talk about decentralization, it's just a smaller pyramid. Absolutely. Yeah. And we talk about culture a lot. Yep. We're both big believers in culture. And, you know, the thing is, is people get culture wrong a lot of times. I mean, you can't announce a culture. That's right. <laughs> like, That's right. That's I mean, right. You know, you just, you can't, you got to listen for culture down at that base level. Because, you know, it's kind of just like that, the meeting outcome of, of either acquiescence or victory or compromise. What happens after that meeting We've agreed to that, but when we leave, you do your thing, I do my thing. We didn't really agree to that. I mean, you know, like, and so the culture becomes something that you didn't even think it was, you know, and that's exactly uh, where we find ourselves societally, really. You know, I mean, it just, um, it's time to sort of recapture Mm -hmm. what it means to, to have power 
decentralized. That's right. I mean, you know, and 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 that is not anarchy. I mean, you know, that's what people are scared of. It really is not because it still ends up being based on values. You know, I mean, it, it is, in fact, values end up still being the fundamental thing no matter what, right? It's about the values that we agree to. And then the strength of the constellation is empowering people to go work within those values and do great things. And, it, you know, the key word is values, right? We all have them, but until we have a conversation, we don't, we won't understand how different they are. And until we have the conversation, we won't understand what values that we have in common that we need to work within. And once we understand what we have in common and we can work within them, we can create that constellation because for, for whatever reason in our society, we've been looking at what our differences are, which don't allow us to come together. We need to understand what the commonalities are. What, what, how, where are we looking to go, right? Understand the commonalities. And once you understand those, then you can begin to work together because the differences won't matter because I promise you what we have in common probably far outnumbers what our differences are. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, this is the unlikely intersection when you talk about values, right? That's right. Because the way those work is really like is really the stairway to heaven, but we got to talk about it. That's right. So, you know, your values might be different than mine, but when we put them together in the context of some direction that we're hoping to go, what we're going to find more times than not is they're synergistic. That's right. And that's why constellations work, right? Because then there'll also be, Several other people in the room, they'll probably, in our case, you know, there'll probably be some women in the room. There'll be some older people, some younger people. There'll be different ethnicity. All those values are, become unlikely intersections, and the power uh, is nuclear. That's right. That's uh, right. And, and that's really what this is all about. And you, you would, it, if we start thinking like this, we will have inclusion by default because it makes it work, right? That's really what makes it work. Cause if we're in that group and a certain percentage of them don't put those ideas in the room based on their values, we're missing something. Yeah. That's right. right. We're missing something. And it's not about a competition. That's where we get things wrong, right? Like competitions for, you know, today it's going to be Saturday with college football. Tomorrow it's going to be the end of, you know, competition is great. Right. But for certain solution makings, it's actually about collaboration. That's right. And it is about bringing your best self. Shoshevsky talks about it in his book, The Gold Standard, right? And it's context versus perspective. The name on the back of the jersey is not as important as the name on the front of the jersey. That's right. That's right. But we want 100% of the name on the back of that jersey bringing themselves to the end product every time. That's right. Um, Inclusion. You just talked about in, uh, inclusion by default. Not really a novel idea, but it is novel. When you talk about what we have in common, 
inclusion by default as human beings. We all need housing. We all need food. We all need education. We all need health care. Those are common goals of everyone, right? Now, there'll be levels of that given what your income stratification is or whatever your need may be. But ultimately, everybody still needs the same, regardless of how that house looks, whether it's a two-bedroom or a, a seven-bedroom home. It's still housing, right? And, and our values, once we understand our common values, we realize that from a specific perspective, I don't need a seven-bedroom home. All I need is a two-bedroom home. But fulfilling the goal of everybody having housing, everybody being included in housing, everybody being included in health care, right? Everybody being and in, in, in including inclusive or included in this economy that, that we, we have. That's where the real power is. That is where the real power is. And I love the theme of, of what we have in common because let's start with biology and genetics. Mm -hmm. And we know from the human genome product that the genetic material of every human on the earth is 99.9 .9 plus percent the same. Mm -hmm. Right? So <laughs> when you talk about humans and humanity, let's face it, right? We're all the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, in terms of, of that science. So then you can take that and it gives you the, the incredible opportunity to look out and see where there are differences in health outcomes or other, you know, educational outcomes or any of this has to be other factors than genetics. That's right. Right. So you got to start looking other places. How do you look other places? You ask folks who are affected. That's right. Right. And it's the same. So you create a constellation of diverse folks, include their ideas, mm -hmm. and figure out problems. That's right. And subsequent solutions. That's right. And when you ask those who are impacted and affected, what you're doing is you're giving a transfer of power. Because that transfer of power is now. Let us gather this data, this information, this knowledge from you guys who can tell us exactly how you need to be included. And you mentioned the constellation, right? And so it begins to happen, and it can, ha it can happen uh, by default if we stop thinking so much and begin acting more on our human instincts versus all the other instincts that we like to think around what our race is and what uh, what our status is in society because those things make us exclusive versus being inclusive and understanding what we have in common. That's right. And the thing is, there's this incredible uh, richness that comes from putting together quantitative and qualitative information. Mm -hmm. Now, where we go awry a lot of times is we love the scoreboard, we love the dashboard, we mm -hmm. love you know some, anything that we can measure. It's like we talked about earlier, it's got mm -hmm. the assumptions in it and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, maybe we're talking about 
housing or food security or any one of the things that we think shouldn't happen. Maybe it's adverse childhood experiences. And we look and we can quantitate that very well. And well-intentioned people fall into the trap of a counterfeit constellation. <laughs> they get a bunch of people, but they don't get all the folks that ought to be involved in the thought process. And so you end up with solution-making, well-intended, that's several to many degrees off of, of due north of what it should be. And we see that all the time. The only antidote is to pull the right opinions in and get the real quant qualitative information to mix with the quantitative. And then from that solution, then you remeasure, right? But I don't know how many rooms I've found myself in over a number of years where I just look around and, and the more I look, the easier it is to see who's missing, right? And as long as you can look around and immediately pick up, you know, X percent of missing, you can also then just multiply that because you can't see all of what's missing, no matter how good you are at it, That's right. right? And so it really becomes a fundamental mindset shift, a fundamental mindset shift. And there are simple ways to do it. You know, we talked about earlier, like the 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 four component, the four meeting things, and that integration was the one desirable outcome. A super easy way to achieve that uh, is with a simple meeting evaluation that that gives people an opportunity to say whether they were heard or not. That's right. That's right. You know. Yeah. You know. I've heard you ask the question before as we sat around different tables and meetings and said, well, who, who should be in here that's not in here? Who should be represented at this table that's not represented at the table to ensure that people are included in the process, right? And even though there's a great deal of data and data drives a lot of decisions, I still like to add that intuition into the the equation simply because it's a gut feel around if everyone is included. If there's something that we're just leaving out that we're not thinking of, not that we're going to think of everything all of the time, but we have to be mindful of the power, uh, in my opinion, the power of intuition. You know, people participate in what they help create. And if they're not at the table to help create, they're not going to participate, which causes a whole new means of exclusivity, right? People at the table making decisions about people that they are not quite aware of, all the nuances of what needs to happen. It's the mother of misunderstanding. And, you know, Exclusion is a, is a sword that cuts both ways. Mm -hmm. And what, what it does is it limits you no matter how you're in an exclusionary process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, another thing we're giving, we're giving Matthew Barzoon a lot of good pub today uh, for his book. <laughs> but one thing I love, and I've really tried to adopt, I've been, you know, testing it, you know, see if it's a, like Dr. Rowley, you know, model. I've, yeah. I've got a model now yeah. that I'm trying to use. It, see. <laughs> um, and, 
And it's interesting. So I, I really think about what three things do I need to do? Mm-hmm. Do I need to expect out of an interaction or a meeting that will optimize my chances for a successful outcome? And they're really the three things are I go into it expecting to need help. Mm-hmm. I go into it uh, expecting to be needed. Mm-hmm. And I go into it with the expectation that everybody in that group will be changed at the end of the interaction, mm-hmm. whether it's one-on-one or, or several people. Mm-hmm. And that's been a pretty good model uh, for a while that I've been testing it in terms of opening up possibility, right? It just it just opens up possibility. I come into it with a, with a notion of humility, right? That I'm going to need help. And I think it's important to put that one first, right? Like, I don't know all the answers. I can't pretend to, I mean, I, don't, I know a small percentage, right? And I can give some context. But that small percentage is important. And so I need to bring my full self into that environment, as does everybody else. And when when those first two conditions are met and everybody is bought into the fact that not only do they need to listen and understand their limitations, but they need to put in their perspective because it is very important. Yes. When you have that condition met, the third one's inevitable. It's going to happen every time. So you go to the table understanding that you have to give away your power in order for the greater good to happen for everyone at the table and whatever it is that you're trying to achieve. That's a different approach than most people. Most people are going to the table trying to figure out what I can get, what I have to win, what I have to be able to take back, which is from an individual perspective or or that whole competition perspective, right? Versus, I'm going to call it co-opetition, where we can all win, but how can I get what I need? How can you get what you need? Yet we're going to create something different so that everybody gets what they need, right? And you get it in abundance, not from a perspective of, you know, well, we had to break down the budget and he got 25%, I got 25%, you know, but it's still 50%. No, we're going to spend the whole, we're going to spend the whole 100%, but we're going to do it we're going to do it totally differently than we've ever thought about it before, and everybody's going to win. Every department's going to win. Every individual is going to is going to win, right? Um, that's a whole different mindset of how people think. And you always have to think of, as you mentioned, what are the opportunities? What are the possibilities You know, in this versus what are the constraints? Well, that's right. And that's why you know, early on in the episode I talked about so often we start out backwards, right? Like we got to get to 80%. So I, as leader, uh, got a pretty good idea of several different things we can deploy to do that. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to conduct my meeting to make sure we arrive at that, Mm -hmm. right? That's very limiting when it really comes down to it because we could have gotten to 96. Right, right, right. If I'd have been willing to admit how much help I needed, if I'd been willing to listen better, and if I'd been willing to take a small risk of – you know, a sure thing versus a way better thing. Mm-hmm. And the leap of faith is just that. 
in most cases, the way better thing is actually more likely than failure. Yeah, and, and I like to think about, about it this this way sometimes. And I've you've probably heard me ask this question. You know, we need to be we need to be at eighty percent, but I know we can get to hundred percent. So the question I ask is, we're at a hundred percent. How do we get there? How did we get there? So now you got to begin to put the, the the puzzle together. How did we get there? We know that. This happened, and this happened, and this happened. So this is how we were able to get there. I heard Dion ask a question uh, as I looked at him, and uh, Dion Sanders, that is, in an interview last night. He said, now that you're there, now what? You're there, so now what? Powerful. Yeah. Now that you're there, now what? So the question is, you became uh, a champion. How did you get there? Now you're the champion. And that's, you know, out in the future. We're game one, we're the champion. At the end of the year, how did we get there? What do we have to do? How do we have to think? How do we have to collaborate? How do we have to, co you know, uh, co-create? How do we have to depend on everyone? Where do we need help? Yeah. How did we get that help? And we're defining our process. Absolutely. Right? Because we couldn't, we couldn't map out every step going through it. But what we can do is we can backtrack our steps, figure out where it could have been better, where it could have gone awry, and put in measures that help us stay on a true path. That's right. And then we got to try it again. That's right. Because it might not work the second time, right? That's or right. it might work way better. That's right. Uh, but that leap of faith piece of, of really scrutinizing how that went. And listening to everybody, because there's going to be a different level of understanding, right? If you, if Dion tries to figure it out by himself, it's probably going to be a miss. But that's it right. doesn't sound like he's trying to, because nope. he's asking the question. Yes, that's right. Ask the question, and that's the key differentiation between leaders of yesterday, leaders of the future. Leaders of yesterday were all about having the answer. Leaders of the future is about asking the question and getting the input and the in inclusivity of everyone. That's right. It's more about how can we get to a certain right. place uh, and really taking in the richness of the team. Well, to me, this has been a great episode. We could probably talk about it for another hour if <laughs> yes. we had it to spare. <laughs> yeah. But uh, if, our, if our audience wants to catch us, you can catch me uh, at Doc Philip Brown. Uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, you can catch us at our website, unlikelyintersection.com. And you can catch me at uh, Terry Jackson, PhD, on LinkedIn or uh, on, on Facebook. Uh, but we, we would encourage you to go out and to look at all of our episodes, like, make a comment, and even suggest topics that you'd like to hear us discuss. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you at the next intersection.